When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. You may be hearing some extraneous noise in this recording, that's because both of us have got every single window in the house, <laughs> as open one as we can get. Two pets, apparently uh, black cats are, uh, are right in the heat, black and white cats. I, I found that quite strange, but I've been advised to put sun cream lotion on Smudge's ears. That's a conversation I've yet to have with the cat, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Finley, I imagine, is panting uh, like I am two minutes from last orders of an evening, but um, uh, it's, that, that, that explains the noises. It's hot, everybody, and it's hot where you are, I imagine, as well. And there'll be people listening to this in Italy going, <laughs> think that's hot. Later in the show, we'll hear from Jim Cowley from New York City Supporters Trust about how they took ownership of the club earlier this month for about uh, 35 minutes, it turned out. <laughs> Kieran, um, yes. But it's Newsday, and you, actually, Kieran, you witnessed some news just the other night. In fact, you, you witnessed a historic night for English football, Kieran, didn't you? Yes, it was... It was uh, we, well, I went along with the Baroness yeah. uh, to watch the... Uh, England versus Norway match in in the Euros and uh, yeah de- decent crowd then and, and it, yeah I, we, we don't want to be accused of being too sort of liberal uh, arty farty types but it was it was genuinely just so pleasant to be there with with loads of young people uh, you know there are lots of uh, women fans there they all have their shirts on they all have the names on the backs of the shirts for the England players. Um, and then expecting a expecting a yeah a, a, a tough match and yeah eight nil right. it's absolutely fantastic yeah against a good team as well I, I think I think here and even the Daily Mail would hesitate to call us liberal for supporting fifty percent of the population uh, <laughs> playing and watching football I hear though that the Baroness held up the uh, <laughs> the traditional end of the of the of the game by getting <laughs> slightly angry with some of the, <laughs> some of the Norwegian players. Yeah, well, halfway through the second half, you know, we were—I think we were seven nil up at the time—and <laughs> um, this Norwegian player went straight through one of the yeah, Norwegian sent off, probably a bit hacked off, and we, and we, you know, we thought, we thought, blah, that was a bit of a Sunday League tackle, straight through um, one of the England players. So, so the Baroness gets up and shouts, "You dirty Northern bastards!" And I'm going, <laughs> you can't, you can't do that. that that's my, that's my job. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm being very magnanimous and saying, "Oh, no need for that." And, yeah, yeah. Well, top, 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 top prosecco work it was. Yeah, 
they are fairly northern as well. I, I was, um, my hat was off to Ian Wright at half time, who said the next goal was really important. In his game, <laughs> it was, it was six nil up. I don't think the next goal is that important. To be perfectly honest, um, big news in Europe though, Kieran. Um, the European Super League and the UEFA have had their two days in in court this week. Um, uh, the UA, uh, European Super League accusing UEFA of breaking European competition rules, and UEFA calling them a textbook example of a cartel. Now, I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I realise what a cartel is. I mean, I, the only context you'd have heard it in is when Uncle Terry was a getaway driver, and they said, <laughs> "Have you got the cartel?" But, um, <laughs> but what, what, it's one of those words, Kieran. I've heard bandied about a lot, and I know it's negative. What exactly is a cartel, and why would UEFA accuse the ESL of being one? A cartel is a closed group of companies which try to achieve uh, the benefits of being a monopoly. I.e., they can they can set set, set prices. Oh, okay. They can prevent other people from competing in the industry. So there's been accusations uh, of this in the past in in things like the transport industry, where I think at once I think when Richard Branson tried to break into the transatlantic route, he said that British Airways had a cosy cartel with some of the American carriers. The 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 prices were too high because they, they were sort of there was a uh, a an agreement, a, a nod nod wink wink agreement, um, and and this is the accusation that, that's forming part. Part of UEFA's defence that uh, if we take a look at the, uh, the the Super League franchise project, it was broadly by invitation only, and therefore the the people who were making the decisions in Super League would be able to dictate distribution of money to prevent any potential genuine competition from from making headway and so on. So um, it, it's it's a really important uh, legal case because although all of the Super League clubs have promised that they won't uh, do it again. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've seen with uh, people from other industries um, that promises are, are not necessarily kept. And uh, if, if we take a look at the Premier League, uh, it says that uh, you know, if, if, if any club does leave, leave to join or do, any club does enter a non-UEFA competition, then, they, then those clubs are going to be fined. Well, yeah, these clubs can afford the fines. So, so you know, uh, I'm I'm still a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, all of the the six clubs from the Premier League are still uh, co-owners, shareholders in the uh, Super League company uh, that might be trying to get get their way out of it. Um, but as far as the hearing was concerned, it, it lasted two days. It was before fifteen judges. Yeah, yeah that is that is Silver Tongue City. Yeah. yeah, can you imagine the 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 hourly rate on that? Who who by all accounts asked questions? Um, there the the claims which are being put forward by the Super League, and I've got to be honest, some of the some of the criticisms raised by the Super League do have merit. If it wasn't for the fact that. They're not doing it for altruistic reasons. They're doing it for pure greed. Yeah. That uh, that UEFA is a monopoly in in terms of competitions, in terms of distribution. It's a but but it's anybody can enter a a, a UEFA competition, and and I think UEFA uh, UEFA name checked Eric Cantona, who said that you know it's it's bloody hard to get there. Yeah. You know, whereas 
with the Super League, you simply have to get an email to say, fancy you, you're, you're in it for next season and, and just turn up. Yeah. Um, but the, the decision will not be made until December, or rather the ruling will not come out until December. If it goes in favour of Super League, it would effectively allow anybody who wants to set up a competition uh, in, in rivalry to UEFA uh, to do so. Um, what would those motives would be? Uh, we don't know, but I suspect it will be you know, financially orientated. Um, supporting UEFA uh, appeared to be most of the European governments. Yeah, um, I, I think they, they realise this, but uh, uh, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, and, and I don't want to sound too beat, sorry, too, too downbeat even. Um, but uh, I, I, there's uh, there's no guarantee in in terms of how the judges are going to reach their their conclusion. Uh, you know, and I, I've seen I've seen twelve angry men. You, know, you only you only need one of them who's very persuasive to to turn turn around the majority. Yeah, you've been to the Porter's Arms here, and you've seen more than twelve <laughs> angry men in your time. <laughs> if you'd been there after you equalised against us with another thirty seconds of the eight minutes of added time on, it's, so are you implying, Kieran? Because there will be listeners uh, worried that should the European Court of Justice find in favour of the Super League that uh, UEFA are operating monopoly. Does that imply then that the, the six British clubs might start to look favourably again, even though they've promised that they will never, ever consider looking at breaking away? I, I think they will find it very difficult right. to do so um, because they have, they've all given pledges, but yeah, you know, I'm just, I, I don't, I don't trust anybody these days in, in power. Uh, because people in power have been known to lie. Mm. Yeah, that's I, I, yeah, that's the only response I have to that is because mm, <laughs> there is nothing you can add to that. Isn't it? Really, I, oh, I wish we were doing the I got news for you at the moment. So many things. <laughs> yeah, I can um, we, we are supposed to be uh, entirely impartial when it comes to things like the European Court of Justice and indeed fraud trials. But I, I must admit, Kieran, to a little free son of disappointment. When I, I heard this news, I'm afraid, because uh, former FIFA president Seth Blatter and Vice President Michel Platini have both been found not guilty following their fraud trial in Switzerland. Yes, yes, and this this all comes down to a gentleman's agreement, um, uh, and and a contract. Uh, yeah, and, and we we do have some of our silver tongued uh, friends who, uh, who listen, and a, a contract can be verbal. And uh, the the defence of Platini and Blatter was that they had a uh, a gentleman's agreement that Michel Platini, who by all accounts was was on a salary of of only three hundred thousand Swiss francs a year in in nineteen ninety eight, so we're talking well, yeah, twenty five years ago, um, for for a man of his means that that was uh, that was quite a modest salary and and that was below his market rate and. I think there there is actually some merit in in reaching that conclusion. So at the time, UEFA was um, skint, or sorry, FIFA was skint, and therefore what happened was that uh, Blatter said, "We will pay you when we've got more money, and I will up your your salary for the the nineteen ninety eight to two thousand and two period, and and I'll up, upgrade it to around about one million Swiss francs per year. Um, and uh, Platini didn't get around to asking the money for uh, for another 10 years. Mm. He, 
So, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, you know, if if somebody owed me two million, uh, I, I would I would probably, you know, and we all forget things. It, it yeah. probably wouldn't be one of the things like, oh no, I've forgotten all about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, the money was paid across to Platini in 2011. So, so the verdict of the, the trial judge was that. Um, she, I think, it, I think it was a female judge said the market value. I'd expect it to be higher. There is no evidence to the contrary that this salary existed, or rather, this payment was it existed um, as far as UEFA were concerned. But then it, it wouldn't be, yeah, because you you would have thought uh, that Set Blatter might have said something to FIFA itself that, mm. oh, by the way, I've agreed to pay uh, Platini, but perhaps he forgot to uh, tell uh, FIFA and Platini forgot to uh, remember to collect it. You know, there's a lot of forgetful people around. And again, they're, they're not the only people. We've only got to look at our, our is, is he our present prime minister? He, he does seem very forgetful himself. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, it's, it's it, again, people in power uh, just, seem, just seem to have very, very poor memories. Um, so uh, Platini and Blatter have been found not guilty by uh, this uh by this uh, judge, uh, Platini is uh, is an angry Frenchman, uh-huh. um, which, uh, which which I think actually is a euphemism from uh, from the Viz Profanosaurus. Um, <laughs> was that an angry pirate? I can't remember. Um, angry but, pirate. Uh, angry pirate. Oh yeah, I'll I'll, I'll tell you that one afterwards. Um, uh, and. Then, then in addition to this, Sepp Blatter, who's 86, was sort of just trying to be as charming and charmless as he tends to be. Um, he, he says, hey, I'm completely innocent of everything. He's forgetting, of course, that uh, he is subject to a separate prosecution uh, in respect of a $1 million payment to uh, the Football Association or peoples connected to Trinidad and Tobago. Now, I, I used to teach in Trinidad. Um, and anybody who knows about the activities of Jack Walker, yeah. who is a, uh, I, I still don't think he's allowed to go to the US because he he will be put in uh, he will be put in handcuffs or walk if he if, if he goes there. Um, he he is somebody who has been involved with football administration, and uh, yeah, he, he makes uh, he makes Lawrence Bassini seem like a a, a nice guest for dinner. Oh, that's interesting because that's a link to our next story. But before we get there, Kieran, I'm, I'm just, I just think an, angry pirate. Is he, I'm guessing because he used the hand with the hook by mistake. Is there anything to do with that? I, I, I think so. Could be. Uh, do you know there's there's so much forgetting in that story between Set Blatter and Platini. It makes you wonder when post-it notes were invented. Because <laughs> I'm fairly sure every now and again, if I have a lot to drink at night, I I will leave notes for myself in the morning. Like, don't forget to record pod. Uh, things like that, get milk, feed cat. I'm fairly sure I would add, get that two million quid to the set blood. You would think so, wouldn't you? Just somewhere you'd put it in, you'd put it somewhere you'd, you'd see it visibly. Or I'd, I'd, I'd tell Ali, she'd remember. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, a bit of a spoiler alert because the next, the next news is about uh, Lawrence Bassini. Uh, and I think it's safe to say you could label this under the you don't say. 
part of this pod. The EFL says it's not received any paperwork in relation to the proposed takeover of Birmingham City from Lawrence Bassini, nor indeed uh, in regards to him offering to fight Simon Jordan for a million quid, which was, which was, I mean, there was a lot going on last week news-wise, but that how that's how that slipped under the radar. That's the yes. remarkable thing. Tell that four-letter word. Jordan, I'm fighting for a million quid. And wants to take over Birmingham City. So anyway, so it seems like someone's it's in the realms of fantasy, which I think is is good news for Birmingham City, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, you know, we uh, we we know the Watford story. Uh, yeah. What's known as Safegate, and for uh, uh, for disc- for discreet reasons, we won't uh, we won't tell it on air, and for, uh, and for legal that, reasons, Kieran. We've made this, we've made, this, yes. we've made this perfectly clear that we can't yes. tell it for legal reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, come to the live show. Um, <laughs> yeah, I still don't know. I'm sure that's not an actual loophole, but there you are. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, Lawrence Bassini went on Talksport with uh, Jim White uh, and, and Simon Jordan last week, and he says he had huge news, huge news, and he and he proceeded to say that he had huge news for four minutes without actually saying anything. Uh, he, he then started to say that he owned a large number of properties in uh, in London's swanky uh, Oxford Street, mm. um, without without a lot of evidence to back that up. He said he had thirty to thirty five million pounds, which was in the hands of a lawyer, which was going to go to buy Birmingham. Um, and when asked had he been in touch with the EFL, he he then sort of talked around the houses. Um, my understanding. Um, from, uh, should we say, sources close to the EFL uh, was along the lines of over our dead bodies oh. uh, will he pass the owners and directors test. Now, you know, we have to look, again, we have to try to be objective and analytical here. And also, um, you know, part of me thinks uh, Lawrence Bassini has become a figure of fun. I, I, I genuinely think this this guy needs professional help. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Yes, if, because if you if you saw the way he was talking, yeah, um, and then his his response, and and yes, it's it's all a bit of a giggle. But um, in order to pass the owners and directors test, does he have any unspent convictions? No. Whilst he's been declared bankrupt twice, that that those those are now spent uh, convictions. Um, I think the uh, the the issue would be in respect of providing proof that he has what's known as future funding. Um, now, there have been talks uh, and, and also there were claims made by Lawrence Bassini that um, David Sullivan at West Ham uh, was somehow going to be funding him the money. Yeah. We all know that David Sullivan can can walk away from West Ham in around about a year's time um, and doesn't have to give any, any of the profits back to the local authorities under the terms of the agreement. Um, again, uh, Having asked asked around uh, a few people who know a lot more about these things than me, the response that came back to me, and this was quite uh, yeah, quite unequivocal, um, uh, David Sullivan uh, wants to maintain his investment investment in, and his connections to West Ham. It, it's more connected to his roots. Uh, I believe his son is connected with the club. His club, his, his son yeah. is completely, uh, you know, is, is a big West Ham fan. Um, and there's no desire to to acquire uh, Birmingham. Now that's not the same to say that he's not lending money to Lawrence. Lawrence he's not lending money to Lawrence Bassini, but uh, David Sullivan is many things. 
he's not a fool. No. And if I was looking at a list of people to whom I would lend money, where I would have a lot of confidence of getting that money back, I think it's fair to say Lawrence Bassini would not be near the top of that list. So um, we, we, we await developments. Uh, we have offered Lawrence the opportunity to speak to us yeah. uh, on the show, as we know. Um, and to be fair to us, he got a very polite reply. Uh, and he says, yeah, when, when the deal's through, he'll come on and, and he'll, he'll have a chat. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, the offer is still there. Um, and that, that's where we are at present. Part of me would love to speak to him, Kieran, and part of me is terrified at the prospect. But you, you make a very fair point that yeah, while we do laugh at it, some of the things he says are quite clearly for want of a better word, deranged, don't they, really? And it, there, there must come a stage when somebody puts an arm around his shoulder and says, look, you, you, if you can't back these claims up, then we need to stop making them in public. Mm. And perhaps mm. he does need to, to to get some help. Or perhaps he's just enjoying the attention and he's 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 taking us all for fools. We don't know. But yeah, it, it's I, you can't imagine David Sullivan, who, as you say, is many things, but he's a very shrewd businessman, would go anywhere near him, even though he has emotional ties from his years of... of ownership at Birmingham City. But the next story, Kieran, is a, is a very intriguing one, mainly because of the scale of the numbers involved. Uh, 329 professional footballers are being investigated by the FA and the UK taxman for alleged tax avoidance. Do we know the scale of it, Kieran? And is the implication that these 329 professional footballers are all involved in one particular scheme, or is it just suddenly randomly... Uh, almost the whole of the Premier League, if it, if it is in one division, are, are being investigated by the FA. Well, um, I think it, it's more of an HMRC thing. The H, yeah, we, we've discussed this before that the HMRC do have a uh, sort of a, uh, you know, a special weapons and tactics division that that investigate uh, high net worth individuals uh, and, and unusual uh, payment distributions. Now. I think there are two issues as far as uh, football, the football industry is concerned. Um, first of all, and we, we've discussed this before, the issue of image rights. Um, what many players are doing um, is they are having a proportion of their total remuneration paid across to image rights companies, which are set up uh, on their behalf, normally by their advisors. Sometimes these are set up overseas, so you know, try, trying to get traction on them is, is more difficult. But um, the, the, the earnings generated by image rights are subject to corporation tax. Now, you pay corporation tax at 19%, um, but then when the, the image rights company pays out money, it does get taxed again. So uh, I, I think some of the stuff which, is, which we've seen in the media has perhaps been uh, a little bit uh, incomplete um, with, with regards to the money. But the the image rights companies could, in theory, pay out dividends rather than to the players themselves. It could be to the families of players. It could be to the partners of players. It could be to the children of players. And um, I'll be honest, yeah, th- this this happens in, in many other industries as well. Yeah. So um, yeah, we're not saying it is unique to football. Um, whereas income tax, if you are a Premier League footballer, um, yeah, the vast majority of your income, I think effectively, if you paid more than 150 grand a year, you're being taxed uh, at 45% in terms of income tax. So so there, there's a way of reducing the tax. Football players are still paying a lot of tax, though. Um, the other issue is in respect of agents' fees. Yeah. Now, 
in terms of agents fees, and you know, I, I should have token spoken to to either Jonathan or Craig, or uh, I've been I've been teaching all day long, uh, but I should have really spoken to them in respect of this. If an agent negotiates uh, on behalf of a player, what we sometimes see is the club pays the agent. Now, some people are saying, I think, within the tax tax authorities, well, actually, the agent's negotiating on behalf of the player, and therefore, that should be a taxable benefit in respect of the player upon which his tax is then charged um, and has, has, this, has this resulted in uh, less tax being paid because football clubs lose money and therefore they don't pay any tax effectively on, on the money that they give to the agent. Uh, HMRC estimates that since 2015, if, if these stories that I'm reading are correct, that it, it is collected £560 million from the football industry. Um, in, in respect of uh, additional tax revenues. So clearly a very significant amount of money. Um, at the same time, the, the football industry is a, uh, is, is, a, is a wealthy industry, as we know. And, and you know, I've, I've always defended uh, a, an individual footballer's rights to earn money. Yeah, so what you're saying is these are historical cases that are being investigated. So this mm. is, it's not a case of a whole group of players investing in a in a film industry, for example, to get round tax. It's just HMRC are catching up with loopholes, essentially. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, yes. Uh, they're catching up with the the way that the system has been set up, and and there is no perfect tax system. Mm. Uh, you know, I many many years ago i used to teach tax and uh you know the the, the chancellor would throw bring out a few rabbits and, and tweak a few things in, in every budget um and you'd just spend you know two or three days with your colleagues saying well that that works that reduces we can move into that and so on um and, and, it, and it was sort of a game of whack-a-mole um that there's no there's no perfect system yeah i'm still trying to work out how candidates for the leadership of the conservative party can say that cutting tax completely Listen, I just have no tax it'll be fine that's a really good idea and then somehow we'll magically pay for all sorts of stuff but professional footballers of course will, will argue that they're not uh, experts on financial matters and they're just guided by their agent or their yeah. financial advisor and they just signed a bit of paper that was put in front of them they? and most I'm guessing most of the footballers being investigated will be wealthy enough to, to pay whatever back tax or, or penalty they're asked to do um, I, I, if if they are currently still playing, yeah, uh, yeah yes, entirely. Oh, yeah, uh, of course, I'd thought that. Uh, yeah, we 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 all know players who are who who are no longer in the game, whose um, whose finances are not as good as, as many people yeah. anticipate. We 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 had Maheta on from the PFA, um, and the PFA have put out a report. I think it was a couple of years ago. Forty percent of professional footballers become bankrupt within two years of retiring, mm. which which is a scary. Uh, scary uh, scenario. The focus is very much on players in the Premier League, um, and even Premier League players themselves aren't, aren't good with money. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's very well earning it, but you, what happens is you settle into a, a certain lifestyle in terms of expenditure, and that and that's something you can easily deal with it during your playing days. When the taps are turned off, and suddenly you've got all of these ongoing financial commitments, things can can reverse very quickly. Mm. There was lots of speculation, Kieran, as to the timing of Wayne Rooney's departure from Derby. Uh, he's now the new manager of DC United in the MLS on a salary reported to be £860,000, which I'm guessing is a lot less than he would have got from even a championship club in England. Uh, under normal circumstances, I, I, I would say yes, but... Um, 
I I was told, and again, you know, we we'll. We, you know, we, we don't know anything for, for certain that uh, part of the reason why I think Wayne Rooney and uh, Paul Stratford and so on were so enamoured with uh, Chris Kirchner that, that Wayne Rooney was offered um, a, a salary in League One and a three-year contract, which was uh, more than the figure you're talking about. Ah, oh, right, um, okay. So, so, so... Yeah, it, it's certainly high by uh, MLS standards. DC United have an absolute stinker of a start to the season. Yeah. Wayne Rooney, of course, was a player there, and he, he had a pretty good record as a player there. Um, but this is all part of the you know the, the, the final unwindings. Um, Paul Stretford uh, has. Uh, via his Triple S agency, has put out some form of uh, "Where's Wally" uh, <laughs> document in respect of Chris Kirchner. Uh, which is, you know, I, I want, I want to, I want to give you a uh, an indictment, but uh, we, we're struggling to find him. I, I, I suggest St Andrews for the next three days might might possibly help because uh, Kirchner does seem to sort of turn up. <laughs> he's a bit like a meerkat, isn't he? Sort of, yeah, you see, you see a golf tournament, and all of a sudden, uh, he's, he's only got the one, he's only got the one jersey, uh, and, and he pops up in the background. So, uh, yeah. It, it's it, it's it's a good salary by MLS standards if it's true. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think Wayne Rooney's star has has lost a little bit of its shine. Yeah. Um, over the course of the past two or three weeks, you know, I, I, I was the first to give him plenty of praise for the job he did uh, at the club at the time, mainly due to the fact that we were talking to people at the club and they were saying he was keeping our spirits up, and he uh, did seem to be you know, quite genuine when he could have walked away on many occasions. Well, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think the circumstances of him leaving should tarnish what he did for Derby County while he was there. But I'm interested, Kieran. You say that um, Paul Stretford is looking for Chris Kirchner to issue an, an indictment. What sort of indictment are we are we talking about here? Um, well, uh, Paul Paul Stretford's agency, if, if the stories are true, um, paid the wages at Derby County for May 2022. Yeah. Uh, on the understanding that uh, that Chris Kirchner was ninety five percent of the way to to buying the club and everything had been signed off, and that money would have was effectively a loan, um, and, and then Chris Kirchner disappeared, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure what he's putting out on social media because he's banned me. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, you're banned. You're banned by a lot of people, Kieran, aren't you, on social media? Maybe, maybe we should. Um... Uh, maybe we should have a pod about that. Let's just get, ask people to speculate on who's banned Kieran from social media. <laughs> maybe then we should be, with retrospect, a little bit more fair to Quantumar because Paul Stretford, uh, like David Sullivan we talked about before, is a very shrewd businessman. And if, if he mm. was if he was almost completely taken in by Kirchner, as it appears he was, then perhaps Quantumar were, were less naive than we thought they were. Um. Yes, but you know, they they're supposed to be professionals. Yeah, um, to, be, to, be, and, to be honest, Kieran, I only asked you that as I've, I've missed talking about Derby anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> should, we, should we move on? This ne- this next story, Kieran, is a very very intriguing one. Uh, the co-owner of Grimsby Town, Jason Stockwood, has basically sent a warning to potential investors in the club. This seems to me unusual. Yes, uh, yeah. First of all, congratulations to Grimsby Town back yeah. in the EFL. Uh, they've they've sold five thousand season tickets this season. They're looking to expand Blundell Park because its its capacity is only nine and a half thousand. So some money is needed. Um, 
Jason Stockwood has certainly helped to stabilise um, the, the club and, and fair play to him. And what he's what he's doing here, he's, he, I think he's trying to put out a no wrong uns alert. Yeah, huh. and yeah, we, oh, we, right. we know about the uh, yeah the, the New Zealand uh, the New Zealand All Blacks no dickheads policy. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I think he's trying to extend that to the boardroom. Uh, and what Jason Stockwood has said is that uh, that they they've received uh, a number of offers for small investments. He says you know sub two hundred and fifty k at a time to buy minority stakes in the club from the UK and overseas. Um, but he says, you know, I, I, I've done some background checks and, and some of these offers were, and, and I quote, not the right reason. So, you know, no. people, what, why buy a, a football club? And, you know, I, and I've said, you know, I've, I've got a chapter in the book which says, you know, love, love, profit, vanity and insanity. Yeah. And, and that probably covers most of these things when it's veering towards property. Uh, so profit uh, and pro- profits normally linked to property. That that's when you've got to be a little bit circumspect. So um, fair play to Jason Stockwood because uh, he appears to be acting as the guardian of the club, and and that's that's one of the uh, that's, that's one of the facets and features we like to see in club owners. It it is, but there's there's not. Is there a danger then that he might deter other serious investors? I think if you're doing if you do the right things for the right reasons, it shouldn't be a deterrent. Is right. always my view. Good, um, okay. because you you would buy into the philosophy of the club, um, and if anything, that that would act as a uh, as as a magnet um, to to people who have got the the right reasons for wanting to put money into Derby. Yeah, well, uh, or or, yeah, even Grimsby. or even Grimsby. Yeah, uh, as long as it's not Chris Kirchner. Um, uh, now. <laughs> We've got two more stories left, Kieran, before we talk to Jim Calverley for New York City Supporters Trust about them buying the club. And the first of those stories is about another club that was recently bought by a Supporters Trust or partly bought by a Supporters Trust, and it's Swindon Town. But an insolvency hearing last week was told that a loan by an American company to Swindon was in fact a sham and was actually a deposit to buy the club. Is, is that anything they need to be worrying about? Uh, well, yes, because this company, this this US uh, investment vehicle, uh, which uh, which is called Able, or for our, our purposes, is called Able LLC or something. Yeah, um, it's issued a winding up petition against the football club. Now we have to do a little bit of of rewinding in terms of time. Yeah, Lee Power, the former owner of Swindon Town Football Club, um, he had a preferred buyer for the club. He, he was looking for an exit route, uh, and Able was this organisation. Now, Able gave uh, Swindon Town £100,000. Now, Able said that money was a loan, and if it is a loan, then it needs to be repaid, right. uh, in which case Swindon need to find either 100 k or you know, the winding-up issue, the, the winding-up order potentially can start to crank in. Swindon have said, well, we've got an issue here because this is between Lee Power and Abel. Um, the, I think it's fair to say that the uh, the paperwork at Swindon is is a bit sketchy. Huh. I, th- I think uh, going back to the theme of forgetting, it looks as if somebody forgot to fill it in. Um, and therefore, has the £100,000 been received? That appears to be the case, um, but in the views of Swindon and the present owners, that one hundred thousand pounds was a non-refundable deposit put down by Abel as part of their initial negotiations to buy the club from Lee Power. So, if it's a loan, 
then there's an issue because it needs to be repaid. If it's a non-refundable deposit, the words non-refundable kick in, and you know, off off you go, Abel, um, and you get nothing. So it's all going to hinge on that. There's there's a lack of of paperwork, and yeah, it it's, it could be similar to what we've seen with. Uh, Platini and Blatter is, is tr- trying to get to the bottom of things where there's, uh, you know, in, in an adequate audit trail or crumb trail, however you want to describe it, normally en- ends up uh, in court. And you know, as we've said on many occasions, the only winners here are the lawyers. Uh, forgive me, Kieran. You, you've probably explained this to me before, but it's hot and I don't work very well in the heat. But what, why, why would this money be owed by Swindon Town or not by Lee Power? Because uh, the money was paid, uh, by the looks of it, the money was paid into the Swindon Town bank account. Ah, okay. Right. Now, it, it looks as if uh, that was then used to, to pay the wages, or Lee Power paid the wages, and then he took the money out of the club because he paid the wages. We, we, we're not quite certain because, uh, again, str- struggling to find the uh, the right uh, authorizations and, and approvals and so on. Yeah, uh, astute listeners may have noticed a. Uh, brief hiatus before I answered that, asked that last question. Uh, and that's because I was trying not to sneeze because uh, all the windows are open, obviously, and the pollen's coming in. And also I was trying to remember whether or not Swindon Town were fan-owned. So I slightly panicked. They are, aren't they? Uh, they're owned by Clem Morfuni. Yes, who got who, Who's an Australian. Yeah. But – uh, we we we've uh, we had people from the Swindon Supporters Trust, yes. and somebody from the Swindon Supporters Trust is now the chief executive. So so yep. there is there is certainly uh, influence by by the fan. Base. Yeah, the, the, the way my mind works at the moment, same thing. Um, one last story, Kieran, and that is again to no one's surprise, the Premier League has delayed the vote on a gambling sponsorship ban. Yes. Um, Apparently, there was due to be a Premier League meeting last week, uh, and uh, one of the uh, one of the items on the agenda, if if the press stories are true, um, was to be consideration for a voluntary ban on front of shirt advertising. Um, and then um, issues took place uh, as far as central government was concerned, and Chris Philp who is the Minister, I think, for Tech and Digital Economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he resigned uh, because he'd, he'd come to realise that the Prime Minister hadn't always been particularly transparent or truthful in respect of some issues. Or, or sorry, allegations yeah, along yeah, yeah, these yeah. lines have been made. Um, now, Chris Philp was, as I mean, involved with the, with the White Paper. Uh, for the sake of transparency, I've, I've spoken to Chris Philp with regards to, to gambling issues uh, in terms of football, as has Mark Palios, as have people from the Big Step, as has the, the gambling industry, as has the football industry. Um, so so the, the white paper was making progress. Um, Chris Philp has resigned, so we're not quite sure what's happening there. And therefore, the, the Premier League says, well, you know, why, why are we talking about a voluntary ban? Um, it it, it I think the government is reluctant to to legislate for this, uh, and it's sort of trying to put the ball into the Premier League's court. And uh, yeah, there's there's normally some sort of quid pro quo. Um, so I, I, I spoke to uh, I spoke to somebody uh, at a club to say, okay, come on, cards on the table, Premier League club. What what realistically is it going to cost you? And the reply was, you know, if we are one of, let's be honest, the other clubs and Brighton and Palace and uh, 
uh, you know, Brentford and so on. All, you know, all of these clubs are the other clubs. Yeah. You'll probably be looking realistically at, say, around about £7 million a season uh, for front of shirt from a gambling company. If it was an other industry, which is which is not gambling with a small g, i.e., it's not crypto or or things of that nature, um, then he says, "Yeah, if I'm honest, we we'd be struggling to get anything above you know one and a half, perhaps two million. Oh, wow. So, so th- there is a five million pound gap. Uh, now, some people say, "Well, hold on, you know, th- these clubs are making a lot of money from TV, and yes, they are. Uh, f- five million pounds." A year is is still a significant amount of money um, in terms of you know, ability to, to sign players. Uh, it's it's realistically for for a club the size of you know, one of the other smaller fourteen. Um, yeah, it's probably two players' salary. So you know, you, two two first team players' salary is is going to be the difference. And uh, and the response was, you know, why why should we give up the advertising? When we're not seeing it happening in the the media industry, so you know you, you get carpet bombed with adverts, yeah. um, pre match, post match. I, I know that there's the whistle to whistle ban, but the whistle to whistle ban's a fallacy because it's actually just a half time ban because that's what whistle to whistle yeah. means. Um, and and the and the and the programs are sponsored by gambling companies, even if there's no formal adverts. Um, so you know why are we being the fall guy when when the broadcasters are, are making a lot of money out of this? So so that is is the position. Uh, you know, uh, for for my position is, I, I don't think a front of shirt ban is is actually addressing the much broader issues of of gambling. Um, and and you know we, we we really need to go the same way as, as we saw what happened with tobacco yeah. uh, in 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 the seventies and eighties and. You either ban it altogether or, or not at all. I mean, as we've said before, Kieran, the whistle-to-whistle ban is a nonsense because there are no commercial breaks during the, the each half of the game mm. anyway. So are you saying then, Kieran, you know, Brighton have got American Express, Palace have now got Cinch. Are you saying that they can't compete financially with with big gambling companies in terms of what they pay or is it just because their deals are with Palace and Brighton rather than Man United and Liverpool? Well, Manchester United and Liverpool aren't interested in in front of shirt gambling deals right, because yeah, they are yeah. they are global brands. Yeah, of course. And you know, the the Manchester United deal with Team Viewer is worth you know, thick end of fifty million a year. Uh, Liverpool, are, I think I think they're still with Standard Chartered, but they yeah. are looking to get a very very good deal. Liverpool, an incredibly sexy brand at present, um, and so on. So the, the 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 big six clubs, it's it's much less of an issue for them because they're going to be unaffected. Um, you know, the, the paradox here is that those clubs already have a financial advantage over the smaller clubs and a front of shirt span uh, for the likes of, uh, you know, Palace, Brighton and so on. And, and you know, we, we can both say that our clubs, we, we, we don't have uh, front of shirt gambling sponsors. And I think the attitude of both clubs is along the lines of if you build up a really good commercial relationship with a sponsor, actually that, that £7 million a year can be recouped, but there's a limited number. Of, of sponsors that are willing to do that. Uh, you know, Brighton are quite fortunate that, that American Express's European headquarters are in Brighton. So, you know, that there is a there is a footprint. You know, my dad worked for Amex. My mum worked for Amex. My sister worked for Amex. I used to work for Amex. Everybody you know in Brighton knows somebody that works for Amex. Um, so so it, it's, it, is a, it is a sort of a local deal as well as a national one. Oh, what did Uncle Terry do for Amex? Uh, well, when it came to traveller's checks, uh, yeah, he, he did the only he, he did the only seventy seven dollar traveller's checks. Which uh, you've, you've, uh, 
I'm sure it's got two S's, Uncle Tell. <laughs> now, these are heady times for York City fans. It's their centenary year, and they've already celebrated that by getting promotion back into the National League after a long time away. And then just a few days ago, the club became 100% fan-owned for around about 24 hours. Uh, we spoke to Jim Calvary of the York City Supporters Trust to find out more about an exciting few days. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Thank you very much for joining us. Before we talk about the takeover, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with the Supporters Trust. Yeah, so um, I've been a fan of York City for, uh, well, all of my life, really. I'm, I'm one of those terrible people that has two football clubs because my dad is a, he's a Newcastle fan and a, and a Geordie by birth. Um, but living in York with two sons that were avid football fans, it was a bit expensive to go. So uh, all the way up there. So we, we started watching York and um, very quickly, from my perspective, uh, I, I, I kind of preferred York a little bit more, small community club. Um, and I've been a season ticket for, for quite some time. So that was how I got involved in the club. And then the Supporters Trust came around about around a year, a year ago. Um, I think it, it's fair to say that uh, things were getting a little tired with the club. We had a um, beginning of last season, we kind of had two two shifts in terms of where the club sat in the community. Um, I think there was a, a, a metaphorical shift uh, within the community. It felt like it was changing a little bit. And there was a physical shift because we, we left Booth and Crescent and we moved out to uh, the LNER, which which we now home now home at. And um, things just came about. It, it became a little bit uncomfortable. And, um, and, and I was looking for some way of, of expressing that and getting involved more in the club. And the trust was... It's such a great organisation that has always had um, such a heavy involvement in the club. Um, it was kind of a natural home for me to to put my energies, I guess, into into realising that what had just been a release for so many years, going to the football for 90 minutes on a Saturday, 
um, I was kind of ready to get a little bit more involved, really. The, the club's had a pretty torrid time in the past 20 years, starting uh, back in 2002 when the American John Batchelor tried to turn you into York City Soccer Club. So, <laughs> God, yeah. <laughs> uh, so tell, us, uh, tell us about the context of the supporters club taking ownership now, just a few days ago, mm-hmm. because unusually in this situation, it hasn't really come out of the crisis, has it? It's sort of developed it, it, to outsiders, it seems amicably. Yeah, so... Uh, it's very difficult to, to explain it, certainly to outsiders, without without giving a short potted history of where the trust came from. So we were actually formed in 2002. Like you say, we we bought the club um, out of administration, uh, which was after after Douglas Craig. Um, and uh, sorry, 2002 2003, um, we we bought the football club. And and in that uh, in that agreement, when we sold the football club, we had certain uh, protections. Um, uh, when we sorry, we bought the football club in 2002. When we sold it to Jason McGill in uh, in June 2006, when we voted on that, um, we put certain protections in place to ensure that if Jason ever wanted to sell the football club, um, the supporters trust were able to buy that football club back, and um, and and that's essentially what we what we did this time round. So, um, it, it kind of was was the the. Uh, timeline was brought forward with the sale of Booth and Crescent, but that was essentially what happened. We have we've had an agreement for nearly twenty years with uh, with Jason McGill that ultimately, if he if he chose to sell the football club, um, then we would be the ones buying it back. Or we would be able to 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 buy it back. Um, immediately after the takeover, then just a few days ago, uh, literally immediately within hours, you sold. 51% of the shares to Glenn Henderson, who you described mm-hmm. as an investor partner. Was that always the plan? Uh, when we when the when the opportunity came around, there was always a plan that, that we would need assistance with it. Um, I think in terms of the deal that was done to buy the football club, it really wasn't going to be possible to um, to kind of raise funds as a as a as a trust to buy ourselves and all that sort of thing. So we had to make some deals. We had to I think our, our trust chairman, uh, Mike Brown, said he, he had to do some wheeler dealing um, to make sure to pull things off. And and Glenn, who Glenn's been involved with us, you know, has been in contact with us for nearly four years. So it it, it wasn't sort of a um, a quick decision of we have someone's approached us as an investor, we can we can bring him in. It Glenn had evidence to us that he was um, interested in the football club, invested in 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 what it is as a community, invested in us as fans. So he presented a great opportunity for then for us to be able to make that deal to, to buy the football club and increase our share as well. So we've increased our share from 25% under when, when the club was owned by Jason McGill to, to 49% now. So so there's advantages on both sides. But yeah, when we knew this deal was coming about, we'd already been speaking to, to Glenn. I think Mike's been speaking to Glenn for nearly four years. So he's had that time investment in the football club as well. I like his... Um, he talks about a model of ownership that's football and fan-centric based, which is great. But were there people in the supporters' trust who felt that you should own the club entirely? Was was that simply not practical in terms of the finances? Well, so so certainly I you know I, I will not um I will not deny it. I'm a huge fan of the concept of fan ownership. Um I think uh, we have a lot of fans at our level who are, are to, to coin a phrase against modern football. And um you know, there's always, there should always be a desire to have fans more involved, would be my argument. And I'm sure we have members that, that are in this situation. Um, 
you know, and, and football wider, it is becoming harder and harder to, to pull that off. Um, and, and as you say, with the statement that Glenn's made, putting fans at the centre of what the football club does um, gives us that element of confidence that, that we wouldn't probably wouldn't be making many different decisions and we're going to be heavily involved as we've put Alistair Smith on the board from the Sports Trust. Um, are you able to tell us what sort of level of payment was involved, how much you paid for the club and then how much Glenn paid you? Uh, so I'm not able to go into to too much detail. Um, it, it, the, what is in public knowledge uh, is already in, in, in the public service that the, the agreement was that um, the football club would be bought back for 350000 So that's been in, in, public, in the public domain since, um, since the vote in 2006 to sell the football club to uh, Jason McGill. So that, that's not new information. Um, it's an old figure because I, I think it probably would, would generally be considered that even a, a National League club, as I, as I have to remember we are now, a National <laughs> League football club is probably worth a little bit more than that. Um, but what is nice and, and, you know, Jason's been great throughout this whole process is he's recognised that, that, that that payment was, a, or, or, or it feels like anyway, from my perspective, that that payment is, is kind of irrelevant. What, what's happening is, is the football clubs going forward um, we celebrate our centenary year this year and, yeah. and we believe this, this kind of the deal and the bringing Glenn in and everything that's kind of going on at the football club that's exciting at the moment sets it up for another hundred years. Kira, can I bring you uh, in here just on two things? Uh, whether or not that's a fair price for the club would be interesting to hear, but also this idea of 51% of the club being owned by an individual and 49% by supporters. Is that an unusual model, Kieran? Um, if, if we look at those in turn... In my view, 350,000, I, I would agree with Jim that it's uh, a uh, well, bargain is, is perhaps too harsh a word, but it, it's certainly uh, low, lower than I would anticipate paying for a club uh, in, in York's position, especially as it's got some real estate assets, property assets, uh, which, are, which are desirable. Um, in, in terms of the, the 51-49 split, I think this, this is broadly... Uh, ahead of the game in terms of where we're hoping some of the things in, in respect of the, the fan-led review are concerned. Um, I, I think the, the the German model, which is 51-49, um, the other way round, uh, is, is more problematic because it means that investors might be reluctant to physically put money into a club. This, this, gives, uh, this gives a bit more flexibility. Uh, but the most important thing is that the fans' voices can be heard by, by having a significant stake in the club. Um, and that, that gives protection. And, and we've seen with, with so many clubs, especially clubs in the north of England, you know, we, you know, we've reeled them off, haven't we? Uh, you know, Macclesfield, Oldham, Rochdale, Bolton, uh, and so on. So many clubs in the north of England have been subject to, to distress. And then you know, we, we've got the destruction of Bury and Macclesfield as well that having a scenario such as this means that the, the, the trust is involved in decision-making, but also acknowledging that there is a natural ceiling in terms of what a trust can contribute to a football club from a financial perspective, whereas an external investor with 51% has the option to, to provide additional funding. Jim, the outgoing owner made what seems to be a quite remarkably generous gesture, didn't he, as well, with respect to the, the, the stadium? Yeah, so um, the the rent has been paid on the stadium for ten years, um, which is which is great. It, it certainly sets us up in a um, in a great position. Um, I think just just clicking back to what what Kieran said there, I think the, the model that that we have and the model that we've 
um, come out of slightly, which is, is was probably slightly unique as well. And it, it, it's not necessarily just about the ownership figures and, and what you what you put in. It's absolutely about the fan involvement and and importantly and and quite symbolically as well. It, it's about that makeup of the board. So uh, previously we were we were supposed to have uh, two um, board members elected by us or, or appointed by us under Jason McGill. That that didn't always come through, and, and, and there was loads of reasons for that. And when we started this project with Glenn. It has gone down to an immediate 50-50 split. So, um, and, and certainly for the for the short term future, that that'll be how it remains. And in the future, when we appoint their board members, what we're looking to do is make it um, kind of a combined decision about who goes on there to make sure that they're beneficial for the football club. But the trust will continue to have a percentage of that board, which is is essentially we we can appoint ourselves as and when we need it. So, um, that that's a I think that's a, a a great way of making sure that right at the heart of your football club, the fans are are there. I want to I want to take you up on that a little bit more in a moment, but I just do want to come back to this this notion of Jason McGill, the outgoing owner, mm-hmm. giving you a huge amount of security by paying the rent mm-hmm. for the next ten years. Was that something you expected, or was that something that was part of the negotiations between and- the game? Yeah, so so I'll be totally honest. It was a little bit of a surprise to me. I found out when the when the statement got released that he'd he'd kindly done that. Um, I haven't been in been intricately involved in the legal discussions, so uh, I, I'm not quite sure where that came through. We haven't had our we have we've had two weeks of it's been a merry-go-round, so I'm not quite sure where that came about or what point that came in. Um, but it certainly does set us up really well, and it sets us into that path that we want, which is um, a sustainable football club. Certainly. Yeah, and again, Kieran, having that. 10-year security is remarkable for a club at that level, isn't it? Very much so. Uh, it, it allows you to plan. And you know, w- when you're budgeting, you you say, right, well, we've got to say, put so much money to pay for the rent, so much to the rate, so much for electricity, and to take one of those core uh, non, non, uh, non-variable costs out of the equation is, is fantastic. It, it, it does allow the club to perhaps consider you know, further investment in infrastructure, further investment in, in uh, youth development uh, and, and the broader issues of, of the club. So much has happened in the past two weeks, Jim. You buy the club one day, you sell part of it the next day. The day after that, this brilliant statement appears on the club's website, a joint statement where you talk about four pillars and, and 13 promises, which are, I think are, are, are brilliant. But you've set yourself a very high standard of governance right from the start with all the things you talk about, engaging the community, engaging fans, environmental impact, all sorts of stuff there. It's, it's brilliant, but it's ambitious, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, football has is, uh, is, is got to be a game of ambition. You know, let's let's be honest, we, we, on the pitch, nobody's sat there wanting to, to draw. Why would you do it off the pitch as well? And our our statement of our mission and vision, um, I think, bore out of one of the reasons that we wanted to make this deal in the first place. I, I think there's no denial that uh, certainly our fans will know that there was a, um, a tiredness, I think would probably be fair to say, around the um, connection between fans and club. There was a, and, and I spoke earlier about that, that metaphorical and physical change that we had at the beginning of last season. It, it, it has brought it to a head. There were a few protests at the stadium at the beginning of last season. Um, so so we were absolutely clear when when all of this project started and, and Mike's been clear from the very start that 
when we're involved in a football club, it, that that fans have to come for, have to come at the beginning, have to come at the this kind of beginning, middle, and end, and and why not set those standards high straight from the begin straight from the off? Look, this is the standard we want to be held to. Um, I'm an elected member of the board. I will continue to be an elected member of the Sports Trust board. And um, if I'm not meeting those standards, then we need to elect someone that 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 will. Um, and I think we've already seen what what's been great. The response to that statement from our fans was that this is exactly what we wanted to see. This is exactly why we had concerns at the beginning of last season. This is exactly you know what we want to see for our football club going forward. So yes, it's a high standard, but uh, we're not scared of it. Fans not scared of it. Um, we you know we are custodians of the football club and um, and yeah, hold us to the standards. I, I very much like the fact you talk about being guardians and you talk about being held to account as well, which is great. Also, as a as a Palace fan who sat through four <laughs> years of Roy Hodgson, and I love Roy Hodgson, but I particularly like the bit in your statement where you say that one way to engage with fans is to provide entertaining football, uh, yeah. which which is which is great. But again, you set the bar very high. Look, it's it's your hundredth anniversary, as you've mentioned. You've just been promoted back into the to the National League. You've got this brand new ownership model. These are these are heady times. I mean, what's what's your ambition, or are you just sitting back and enjoying the moment at, so far? Uh, so, so I'm certainly not sitting back. I haven't had time to sit back. My phone has been uh, physically hot for the last two weeks <laughs> with uh, Twitter and media requests and and all these kind of things. And um, we're certainly not sitting back. You know, uh, John Askey, our managers, uh, from a footballing perspective, John Askey, our managers, been been pretty clear on the fact that he's he's not someone that likes to sit back and neither are we um you know we we want to get on with stuff we want to get on with stuff on and off the pitch um and and yeah i don't see a ceiling to to how we work um we can always look for ways to improve and if i know the york fans well enough they they won't settle for for, for us just for mediocrity they'll want us to keep pushing uh, on and off the pitch and those fans really turned up in their numbers, even even during those years in National League North. You were getting six or seven thousand people at home games, weren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean we had a we had a um we had a, a friendly against Borough on Saturday and we had over four thousand people there. Really? Which, you know, okay, fine, Borough bought twelve hundred people, but for a friendly for a National League football club, that that's that's pretty exceptional. Um we sold out for the playoff game, uh for the playoff games. Um yeah, we we've consistently had kind of uh, three and a half thousand to, to games against, and this is absolutely no disrespect to them, but games against Bradford Park Avenue, who perhaps will bring 50 fans, or you know, Geisley, the Geisleys of the world, where they're not bringing a huge number of fans, they're not bringing you know, numbers that will bump up your average. Essentially, you're in a stadium full of York fans, and and, and we've been really pleased with, with how the sports turns out. We've already sold just short of 2,000 season tickets for this season, um, which is an increase on last season. Um, it, it, you know, things are looking good. Fans do keep coming. Um, they and, and to be fair, that's always been the case. You know, York, York fans have always turned up. They've always turned up in the numbers, and they've always looked out for the football club. One last thing, Jim, Kieran and I, older men than you, I have to say, we were reminiscing on our last pod about your brilliant 1970s home kit, the room one with the the white Y. Yeah. And, and lo and behold, we're doing this on Zoom, which is unusual, but you're wearing. <laughs> Something I noticed today, a brilliant away kit, the chocolate and cream stripes. That is a fancy kit. Yeah. And and I presume it's a nod to the history of the city as well, is it? Yes, it's, so it's actually our third kit. Our away kit's not, not been announced yet. This is our third kit, so it is very much a special edition. But yeah, it's a it's a nod to um to the to the chocolate to the chocolate that the city is renowned for. 
Um, and a huge amount of credit has to go to, to Dan Simonite, who's our um, who's technically our media officer. Though he, he did announce he was leaving yesterday, which is very sad. Um, who, who's helped design these kits and helped work on these colour schemes. Um, it's an absolutely glorious kit. It's had a, it has had so much credit across the football world. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm holding it up so that you can see more of it. But um, the reality is... It. Yeah, people, people at home, that's pointless. But Kieran and I yeah. want, want to see more of it. Um, but yeah, get, go and check it out on our, on our socials because... It is, it's a it's a lovely kit and it's really well made. You know, I, I really like it. it I'm I'm not a big buyer of new kits. I've got a, a, I've got a multitude of retro kits, but um, yeah, I've I've bought all of them actually because because our home kit as well is is kind of this uh, maroon kit, but it has um almost uh, elements of kind of the the architecture of the Minster kind of in within it as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. they they've absolutely made. Uh, you know, we can't take credit for it because it obviously happened before we took over. Um, but it, uh, they have absolutely nailed the centenary kit so far. Um, it is our hundredth year, so it's it's good to good that we've really kind of nailed that. Yeah. So all you need is a picture of Richard III on the back and a Viking helmet. <laughs> You've covered all the historical bases in York, pretty much. Jim, it's been really good to talk to you. It's it's so refreshing for us to have a positive story. I mean, we had, you know, we spoke to Swindon Supporters Trust, we followed their story, but that was after two and a half, three years of, of chaos, basically. And yours mm-hmm. is a bit, seemed to be an almost seamless transition and we want to see that happening at War Club. So we wish you all the best going ahead. And, and seriously, that kit is just, well, it's, it's lovely. But cheers, mate. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much for having us on. Um, I'm, I'm really happy that we're, we're in the position we are and uh, happy to talk about it anytime. It's a really interesting interview, Kieran. There's a couple of things. Uh, I'm old school, so that that shocking revelation in the first minute of the interview that he's from a two-club family, <laughs> I, 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 I'd be calling him Geordie from now on. Every time I see him, you know, here he is, Geordie, Newcastle fan. Uh, um, but this is a really interesting deal, Kieran, because it's kind of like, I don't know how you, how you describe it, a bloodless coup, a very civilised takeover to the extent that the outgoing owner is paying the rent for 10 years. I mean, normally we associate supporters club takeovers with almost the last resort or, or certainly uh, when a club is in trouble. So it's it's quite it's quite reassuring to see that a, a supporters group can take over a club in such a, uh, a calm, smooth way and then pass it on to somebody who can bring in even further investment. Yes, yeah, it, it, it all seems uh, very positive. Uh, yeah, I agree with you entirely for... For for most supporters, club takeovers they they've had they've had to do the role of Thunderbirds yeah. and and be international rescue uh, as far as the uh, local club is concerned. Um, and uh, oh yeah, the, the the Baroness named her son after one of the Thunderbird pilots, by the way. Um, Which, uh, Virgil. That, that, oh, uh, that's, that's give, giving away too much information. Oh, of course, it would be. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, there's, um, only, there's only five of them, so we, 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 it's not Virgil. We, no, brains. <laughs> I don't think brains was a pilot. Before we get angry tweets, you, you know the sort of thing our listeners <laughs> oh, get. I can imagine. I can imagine. Up, yeah. Um, but yeah, th- this seems this seems uh, really positive. Uh, you know, the 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 owner who uh, whom the uh, trust had originally sold the club to. I think he just reached the uh, a period of time where he felt that he had to move on, and uh, everything was done very amicably, which shows that you know perhaps perhaps we've become too jaundiced in in the three years that we've been doing this show that there's so much bad news that you know the good news it just tends to go under the radar. Well, it also shows as well, Kieran, that supporters trusts now 
are way more than just a well-meaning group of individuals. They're very well-organized, sensible business people because they had the foresight when they originally sold uh, the majority of the shares to the club, to the owner that they just uh, bought out again, to stipulate in the contract that they would have the first refusal when he wanted to, to sell those shares back. Yes, so, and, and the price price they paid was superb as well. Yeah, yeah. So it 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 does show you that the the fan ownership model really has progressed. I think in in the just in the two and a half years we've been doing the pod, so that's it, it's very encouraging to have a, a nothing but good news story on the pod, and very interesting. Yes. And also, I can't stress enough how cool that chocolate and cream striped kit looked. That's yes. a, that's and, a, and and I've, I've checked the website. It's I know. I, I'm surprised. Do you know what? I'm, we interviewed Jim about an hour ago. I I bet Ali a fiver that by the time we actually recorded this pod, you'd have bought one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that's very kind of you. Go to patreon.com slash price of football. And don't forget, we will have some very interesting news for those of you who are Patreons or about to become Patreons shortly. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, then email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell well as always folks th- thanks so much for the support um we are, are genuinely touched by uh, the way that you hold us to account and, and you seem to be enjoying the show and really appreciate it uh patreon is is one method of of showing a bit of love for the show uh but if you want to give us some good karma and and genuinely make a difference and producer guy tells us all about the algorithms and myself and kevin nod like like dogs <laughs> uh and they've got no idea what he's talking about but it does help us in the charts it helps our credibility when we're trying to uh book guests as well um if you could give us a review if you give us five stars it helps us uh in in those charts and and we are we are punching with some pretty big hitters uh, these days um, Apparently, it doesn't matter what you say uh, in the review. The important thing is that you do give one. So you could you could even say you would rather have the show uh, presented by Buster Blood Vessel of Bad Manners and Liz Truss of the Save the English Cheese Foundation. Good Lord. Um, and uh, it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to me or Kevin. I, I don't know if Buster Blood Vessel's still around, but he, he can't cope well in this heat, surely. <laughs> no. Well, the, the, the most violent gig... I okay. ever went to yeah. in my life was a bad manners gig in Brighton in well yeah way back way back in the day um and we were da- and it was one of those places which had two two levels and we were down sort of on the dance floor and then about 15 skinheads turned up in full full you know shaved heads uh full shit skinhead gear uh with baseball bats and just took out everybody on the dance floor, uh, and uh, yeah, but, but it was, it was great, still a great gig. <laughs> still, <laughs> still, yeah. yeah, yeah. We we lasted about three three songs at a bad manners gig, and we thought this is not the uh, cuddly fat chap that we we recognised from Top of the Pops. Some of these political views seemed slightly dodgy. As far as I was answered. I always liked it on Thunderbirds, by the way. I loved it when they used to cut to real hands. Yes, <laughs> it always used to make me laugh, and I'm just saying that so we don't we don't end the show on stories of a skinhead riot in the in the early eighties. Because I I would like to think that this is the one BAFTA lasted all the way through to the end, <laughs> putting a lot of ticks in the columns. Going, actually, I'm glad I listened all the way through. Now, oh, really? Okay, it's ruined it a bit. <laughs> See you next time. Bye bye, everybody. Bye.
the price of football.